0: Would you please join me in standing as we read uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron was the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab was the father of Nation, and Nation was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jehatham, and Jehatham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Mansa, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Habudu, and Habudu the father of Elohim, and Elohim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zabadok, and Zabadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eludu, and Elidu the father of Eliezer, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, If you walked
1: into the building and you've been in the building before, you notice that it feels a little different. Uh, thank you for to all the women who came this week and Christmas fied this place. It, it makes me happy. And as you've heard us talk about, we are starting a season we call Advent. Uh, I am curious, if you don't mind, how many of you uh, in the church that you came to before here celebrated Advent? This is a familiar thing. Okay. I'm not going to ask if you've never celebrated it before. I don't want to put you on the spot. But I know that not all of us are familiar. So I want to take this time to explain that the word Advent, advent, excuse me, it comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. Arrival or coming. And so in this season, historically, churches around the world have celebrated the first and second arrivals of Jesus Christ. So we live in this inter-Advent period where we celebrate what has already happened and we look forward to what will happen. And when we do this, we especially when we come to a text like Matthew, I've picked Matthew very intentionally because he has a specific eye on all that God has done in the history of the world and, and as is documented in the Old Testament to prepare the way for the Redeemer, the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we have all through the Old Testament different categories to understand who he would be and what he would do. And very specifically, we have prophecies that would help us to understand exactly what the Messiah would be and how he would come about for the purpose of letting us know this is him. This is the Messiah that that the Israelites have been waiting for. And on a personal note, I will say that as a college student at Florida State, when when my faith became my own, these prophecies and watching how they became true in, in one person, uniquely in one person, Jesus Christ, it had a significant effect on my understanding of the whole of the Christian story. I mean, the chances statistically of one person fulfilling all these prophecies are statistically impossible. So we have... I think we have 60 very specific prophecies that the Savior would have to fulfill. And then like 260 ramifications or implications about those prophecies. And the chance of one person fulfilling them all would be one to the 157th power. All right. So that's one with 150 zeros behind it. And that would be the same statistical chance. And this comes from Josh McDowell as filling the state of Texas up three feet in silver dollars, marking one, and then me blindfolding you and having you roam about the state of Texas and on your first try just happening to pick up that coin. Those are the chances. And as I was wrestling through this, I would think things like, well, okay, but couldn't Jesus have maybe lived his life with an eye to the prophecies? You know, couldn't he have known what they were and decided he was gonna, he was gonna fulfill those? And the answer is maybe with a few, but a lot of these prophecies were things that he did not control. Things like uh, where he would be born, how he would die, what would happen to his body after his death, and then specifically to our text this morning, the family line that he would come from. He simply couldn't have, have, no person could have lived a life intentionally in a way that would fulfill these prophecies and that's caused other people to say things like well maybe maybe the prophecies have been doctored you know maybe after Jesus lived somebody went back and changed all those prophecies and the real problem with that is the old testament you know we we have the old testament that predates Jesus we have copies of the old testament that predate Jesus and we have all our jewish friends who worship and hold this Old Testament that doesn't vary from ours in any way. So if they'd been doctored, we would have a different Old Testament than our Jewish friends, but we don't. And so as I began to look at these prophecies, they impacted me. (laughs) The probability kind of, it made its way to my heart and it had a major piece in me coming to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so because of that, we are going to be in this Advent season in the first two chapters of Matthew. And we're we're gonna be there because Matthew has this habit of saying things like, uh, this happened to fulfill what the prophet so-and-so said. And you're gonna notice that as as we walk through it because he's got an eye on these prophecies. He understands what all God did to bring about the savior of the world. And when you see... The person who's writing it, it shapes what we're reading it even more. Because most people here would know that Matthew was a disciple, but it's easy to forget what he was before he was a disciple. He was a tax collector. And in that society, tax collectors were some of the most reviled people in their society. They would literally steal from their own people to support the occupying army. They would go to the, they were they would put bids in to be a tax collector. They would on the front end pay all the taxes for the people they were responsible for, and that gave them license to then turn around and take in, under the you know the, the guise of taxes from whoever they want, however much they want, and whenever they wanted to do it. There were actually laws created uh, among the Jews that that would protect them from tax collectors. They would say, "Yeah, you can never lie." Unless you're talking to a tax collector, then you're all good telling, telling a little lie. They, wouldn't, they even made laws that would not allow tax collectors to come into the temple and worship because they were so reviled. And if you look for it, you can see that Matthew understands what it's like to be an outcast. He's writing this gospel from the perspective of an outcast who has experienced extreme grace. And that's certainly gonna be true in our passage this morning. All right, so the stage has been set somewhat. The crook has been converted. You have 400 years of silence. So when you're reading your English Bibles, you, you turn from Malachi to Matthew and there've been 400 years that God was not speaking to anybody. And then here it is. You get to the beginning of the New Testament. And what do you have? A genealogy. A <laughs> genealogy. And to, to us, we can get there, and, and it can feel fairly anticlimactic. <laughs> one uh, one pastor said it can seem about as exciting as reading the Hebrew fo- the Hebrew phone book. You know, we we look at a genealogy, and we can very quickly think this has nothing here for me. You know, it, it, as we read our New Testament, I'm willing to bet most of us here just skim over the genealogies. If if we don't, maybe we just skip over it completely. You know, when you have your family gather around, your parents, your children, your siblings, whatever, and you read the Christmas story, how many of you read the genealogies? We haven't. I'm kind of convicted. We, maybe we, should, we will this, this Christmas, I don't know. But we get to the genealogy and, and we at best don't understand it and at worst are kind of bored, kind of let down. But to the original audience, this passage would have captivated them. It would have gripped them. It doesn't hit us because we're Americans 2,000 years later on a whole other part of the earth. But if you are a Jew in the first century and you hear that Jesus has claimed to be the Messiah and you start reading and you read these verses, you will be gripped and you will be asking, can it really be? Can it really be that this is the Savior that we've longed for? And this passage is, answers many of those questions and so that my hope this morning is that when we dive into this passage we would have the same reaction to a genealogy and and I want to look at this passage and I want to look at three specific pieces the purpose of a genealogy because that's not something that is clear to most of us I want to look at the people in the genealogy because again we can skim through and miss a whole lot about the people that That Matthew is talking about and then lastly I want to look at the promise of the genealogy so let's dive in first the purpose of a genealogy the purpose of a genealogy is to confirm legal claims of title property and authority to confirm legal claims of title property and authority and it's kind of fun to talk about genealogies when we're coming off of Thanksgiving and families are fresh in our minds. And some of you went to be with your families and you were very encouraged and you enjoyed your families. But I know that wasn't true of all of you. Some of you went home and, and you have families who fought. You're missing people. You're frustrated with your, with your family. Maybe your parents nitpick you or your, your kids don't get along. I know some of you who have told me, I, I look at my family in Thanksgiving and I think, how is it that I'm related to you people? But in our context, 21st century America, our families don't define us. They affect us, but they don't define us the way that they did back then. In in this setting, in the people Matthew's writing to, family was everything. It defined even their very name, all right? So here, I'm Jim Davis. In that context, I would have been Jim, son of Bob. That would have been my name. And all the baggage, good or bad, that came with Bob was accrued to me. A family who you came from meant everything. And we can see, if you go back to Ezra, when the exiles were returning to the promised land, if you couldn't prove through your genealogy your Jewish heritage, you couldn't even take part in worship. Let's read Ezra 6. The returning exiles sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. You couldn't enter the temple and take part in worship if you did not have a genealogy. You could not buy property if you did not have a genealogy. It was like a a driver's license or a social security number. It validated you. It confirmed who you are. It gave you rights and privileges. And you had authors like Josephus. He's a famous uh, Jewish historian. They would begin their books with their genealogies. That, that, That would give give credibility to what it is that they were writing. But in our context, we just don't appreciate it because if, if Kurt Heffelfinger began his book with his family tree, we would just think that was really weird. But in that context, it wasn't just not weird. It was absolutely necessary to prove who you were and the claims you're making about yourself. In fact, Herod the Great, he was so ashamed that he was half Jewish and half Edomite and that he couldn't prove a pure Jewish heritage, that he had the public documents building burned so that no one around him could claim a more pure pedigree than he could. So genealogies were a big deal. (laughs) 2,000 years ago in Israel, and no genealogy would have been more important than Jesus Christ, who is claiming to be the savior, the Messiah that they had long awaited for. So you get to verse one and they would have been gripped. As Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, here's the proof. The son of David and the son of Abraham. This right here would have given Jesus legal support to the claims that he's making about himself. And so you have have this messianic line. And it had to come through a number of people, probably most importantly, Abraham and David. Abraham and King David. And Matthew, right off the bat in verse 1, is saying he does. He comes from that line. So let's start with Abraham. Why is it so important that, that the Messiah would come from Abraham? Abraham is one of the most important historical religious figures in the history of the world. Three major world religions claim him as their father. Every gospel addresses Abraham. 11 New Testament books address Abraham. Abraham is a hugely important figure. You can read about him in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. But you see that even before before he was this great man of faith, he was a normal pagan guy, pursuing normal pagan things until God pursued him and entered into his life in a way that would radically change his future and humanly speaking, the the future of the entire human race. Before he was this great, you know, Hebrews Hall of Faith person. This was a guy that, when he was presented with a tough scenario, when he was fearful twice, he turned over his wife to other men, saying she was his sister. I can't imagine the conversations that happened the second time he did that, much less the first. And then in Genesis 15, God comes to Abram and he makes Abram a promise, a promise that to him at the time would have, would have felt unimaginable. Genesis 15, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, why was this an unimaginable promise? is because Abraham and Sarah, they were well beyond childbearing years. Humanly speaking, that ship had sailed. But God says, no, I'm not just gonna give you offspring. I'm gonna give you so many that you're gonna have as much trouble numbering them as the stars in the sky. And in that moment, Scripture records that Abraham believed God. He believed that God would do what God said he would do. And that's the moment that everything changed for him. That's the moment Abraham became declared righteous, and then a few chapters later, God gets more specific with the promise. He ups the ante in some ways. In Genesis 17, God makes a covenant with Abram, Abraham saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And here it is. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. There would be an offspring among all the offspring that would come in to redeem the world. And that redeemer would be named Jesus Christ. But that redeemer had to come through the line of David. And this is exactly what Matthew is saying in the first two verses. So he's from the line of Abraham, but he also has to be of this other line. He had to be the line of, of David. And Scripture makes this clear in a lot of places, but one of my favorites it comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And and if as, as an aside, if you have friends who value Scripture, so who... who who believe scripture is, at the very least, the Old Testament, believe that it's of God, but they're not convinced of the deity of Jesus. So these would be our friends who are Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or even of Jewish heritage. This is a really good verse to know and to be able to walk people through because it makes massive claims about the Savior that would come through the line of David. And here it is. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And here it is, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now... Just because you're from Abraham and from David, that doesn't, that doesn't alone qualify you to be the savior of the world. Jesus' brothers and cousins and dis- second cousins and third cousins, they all qualified in that way as well. But this is a major piece of the puzzle. The conversation can't go forward until we see, is he of Abraham? Is he of David? Then the answer is yes, because the purpose of a genealogy is, again, to confirm legal claims of title, property, and authority. And that's what Matthew is trying to do. But he's not only trying to do that. Because if you look at the way Matthew is organizing and describing this genealogy, he's doing something more. But to see that, we need to look not just at the purpose of a genealogy, but we need to examine the people in the genealogy. So second point. If you were a Jew 2,000 years ago in the ancient Near East, and you read this, this genealogy, something would have jumped out at you very fast. There are women in this genealogy. I mean, women are insignificant to, to the, the genealogy of a family. The genealogy, the line, it goes through the men. Why would Matthew include women here? And, and I'm not talking about morally exceptional women either. <laughs> I mean, in some ways, we're, we're getting the bottom of the barrel but Matthew is doing something very specific in doing this. And I want to say if you're if you're not a Christian and you're here today, another piece of my journey into the faith was seeing the way the Bible lets us know about the history of God's people. Because humanly speaking, this genealogy is not the genealogy that we would want to present to give credibility to Jesus' claim as, as king of kings and lord of lords. A bunch of men would have come up with a genealogy without any moral impropri- improprieties and in that day without any women. But the Bible doesn't whitewash over things. God doesn't do things the way that men do. The way that men do. And so he has a very different type of genealogy here. We have four women, and the first is Tamar. As Kevin read, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Do you remember the story of Tamar? Genesis 38. It's a very sordid story of incest, prostitution, and deception. All right, so Tamar was the daughter-in-law of Judah, Tamar's husband, Judah's son, died, and so she became the wife of of her husband's brother. And that might sound weird, but that was just the way they took care of widows in those days. If your husband died, you automatically were married to his brother, and you were taken care of. And and Genesis 38 is really detailed. I'm going to try and and be as, as clear and appropriate as possible here. Tamar's second husband, he wanted the benefits of that relationship, but he did not want the responsibilities. If that doesn't make sense, read Genesis 38. (laughs) And God struck him dead. And so here you have Tamar, no husband, no children, and she decides she's going going to take matters into her own hands. She isn't going to wait on God's timing. She is going to pretend to be a prostitute and see if her father-in-law can give her the children she wanted. And in Genesis 38, we see that twins were born, and the first of the two was Perez, the next link in the messianic chain. Uh, so some number of years ago, I, I met a girl, um, and she introduced herself to me as Tamar. And I just kind of <laughs> opened my eyes. And she could tell her as a Paul, she said, you know, like in the Bible. And I said, I, I know, but I don't think your parents read the Bible. <laughs> and if you're here, and you're, you're, you're saying, yeah, but where's that really redeeming part of her story? You know, where, where's the redeeming part of the story of Tamar? It's not there until you get to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew is including Tamar. Why? Because he wants to communicate to the religious elite of that day that we serve a God of grace. And that grace is going to overcome whoever we are, wherever we've come from, and whatever it is that we're doing. So that's Tamar. Secondly, we have Rahab. My first sermon ever was on Rahab. And I have very successfully wiped any traces of it from the internet. So you will not be able to find it. But Hebrews records Rahab as Rahab the harlot. Rahab actually means pride, insolence, and savagery. Rahab was a Canaanite, a mortal enemy of God's people. And she's introduced into the story of the Old Testament in Joshua chapter two. And literally her only redeeming quality is that she told a lie. That's Rahab. So God's people are coming to the promised land. They're led by Joshua. Joshua sends spies into the city of Jericho. They take uh, take refuge in Rahab the prostitute's home. And people get word that there's a spy of the Israelites among them and Rahab agrees, I will lie to them and tell them that you're not here. If when your people come and destroy our town, you will take care of me and my family. The spies agree. Jericho is sacked. Rahab is brought into the community of the Israelites. She's converted to the one true God and she becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. Now, why would Matthew want to include Rahab in this genealogy? I think to communicate it doesn't matter where in society you rank. This God of grace is for everyone. And then thirdly, we have Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, all right? The Moabites, their entire group of people came from incest. So you had Lot, Lot. I know, this really is all in the Bible. <laughs> you have Lot, after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, he's in a cave with his two daughters. His two daughters are looking around thinking there's not a lot of prospects right now for husbands and children. So we're gonna trick our dad. We're gonna get him drunk and he's gonna be the father of our children. And we pick this up, Genesis 19 and verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day, Ruth's people. The younger also bore a son and called his name Binamah. He is the father of the, Anamites to, the Ammonites to this day. So Ruth was a part of a tribe that was particularly despised because they came, they were, all of them were products of incest. They actually had laws about how to deal with people who were Ammonites and Moabites. Deuteronomy 23, no Ammonite, remember that was the line of the other daughter's son, or Moabite, Ruth's line, may enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. But like Rahab, Ruth came into the communion of Israelites. Ruth was converted to the God of the Israelites. Ruth married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of King David. So why would Ruth be in this? I think because Matthew is wanting to say it doesn't matter what type of ethnic group you come from. It doesn't matter what kind of pedigree you have. Jesus loves all of you, wants all of you, and his kingdom will be made up of every type of person ethnicities that are prized in certain cultures and ethnicities that aren't. It doesn't matter because they are all prized by Jesus Christ. So we have three women. And then lastly, we come to Bathsheba. Did you remember hearing the name Bathsheba in the genealogy? Bathsheba, actually, the the name is not there. It's really interesting because what, what Matthew does, he says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Okay, he's doing something really intentional here. He could have said David's the father of Solomon or he could have said David is the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. But what he's, what he's in essence saying is David, the father of Solomon, but by somebody else's wife. So, so if somebody came to you and said, Joe got Bill's wife pregnant, okay, that, that phrase is meant to, is meant to evoke emotions of shame and guilt. And however that makes you feel is exactly how Matthew wants us to feel as we're looking at the, the way he's saying Solomon came into this world. And most of you know the story of David, but I'm not gonna assume all of you do. David was king, his, his army was off fighting a battle. He should have been with them, but he wasn't. He stayed back and he saw the soldier Uriah's wife who's back in the home bathing. He was attracted to her, he had his servants bring her to him, she became pregnant. David was worried about getting caught, so he had Uriah come back off the front line. He was hoping that things would transpire in a way that Uriah would think that was his kid and not King David's. But Uriah was such an upright man, he said, I will not do anything my soldiers who are fighting can't do. David even tried to get him drunk, see if he'd change his mind, but he didn't. He wouldn't wouldn't compromise his values. And so David then graduated from adulterer to murderer. And he sent a letter to the front lines to Uriah's commander and he said in the moment of intense fighting I want you to pull your line back but don't tell Uriah. I want him to die. And that's what happened. So somebody came and confronted David. David repented. He married Bathsheba. They had the baby and the baby died. That's what Matthew is wanting to bring to our mind when he says... David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. But David and Bathsheba had a second child, and that child was Solomon, the next link in the messianic chain. So why would Matthew want to communicate the genealogy in this kind of way? I think he's wanting to say, it doesn't matter how messed up the family of origin you have is. It doesn't matter where you came from, how you came into this world, because God is creating a new family in Jesus Christ that will not let you down, that will support you, and that will love you. So in many ways, this genealogy, it reads like an episode of Moripovich. You know, I mean, you look at all these pe- people, you have four women, uh, Two of whom are prostitutes, one's an adulteress, one's a cursed Moabite, and then you look at Jeconiah and all the evil kings that, that followed him, and you begin to get the idea that that Jesus comes from a line of sinners, and that's the point. <laughs> because something really important to understand in the context that Matthew is writing to is that in these four hundred years of silence between again in our English Bibles, Malachi and Matthew. God had not been speaking, but the Pharisees had been working. And the Pharisees had begun to to create all these additional laws to the laws that we have in the Bible so that we could feel as if we're actually accomplishing what God had told us to accomplish so that we could be, we could claim that we are in and of ourselves righteous. So as this is happening, the israelite elite the the pharisees are beginning to feel more and more confident in their ability to stand in front of a holy and perfect god and say i've done it i'm righteous they had become insufferably judgmental and legalistic and condescending to everyone who wasn't them every other culture every other people and matthew in this genealogy is wanting to throw in their face the very thing that comes between them and their Savior, their insufferable self-righteousness. That's what Matthew's wanting to do in using these people. And you can see, you can imagine how they would have reacted (laughs) to this genealogy. It's not at all conforming with, with the idea that they have for Jewish religion and Jewish tradition that had developed over those 400 years of silence. And you can see you know, why I say that this, th- this genealogy is one of the things that gives me confidence that we can trust the Bible. We can trust the reliability because th- this would not be the genealogy that any of us today nor anyone 2,000 years ago on the other side of the world would have come up with to communicate Jesus is credible. But Matthew isn't concerned with just showing us that Jesus is king. Matthew is concerned with showing us what kind of king Jesus is. A king that will love, protect, and stay with any of us if we believe, no matter how immoral, disobedient, unsuccessful we are. That's what Matthew is wanting to communicate. What Matthew wants is all of us to look at this genealogy and recognize that Jesus is king because we're born all wanting to exalt ourselves as kings and queens of our lives. This is what we wanna do. We wanna be in charge. We wanna dictate the terms of, of our lives. But what Matthew is wanting us to see is that there's another king, a king who is infinitely better at leading our lives than we are, who infinitely knows more, who infinitely cares more. And he's wanting us to recognize that we're not king, and he is, and that is the very first step to becoming a part of his people probably the most necessary step. And so the question we have to ask this morning is have you done that? Have you made that step in acknowledging that Jesus is the only only qualified king over any of our lives? And if you're a Christian here this morning, I, I know because I am a sinful Christian that it is so easy to constantly fall back into this trap and want to take charge of our lives again. And this genealogy to all Christians in the audience, it serves to remind us that we're not in charge and remind us that it is a great feeling when we actively relinquish the power of our lives to the God of universe, trusting that he knows how this needs to turn out. If you're Christian, is that the way that you're living out this holiday season? So that's the purpose. Those are the people. And then lastly, the promise. The promise of the genealogy of Matthew, very simply, is that God will do what he says he will do. I mean, if you look at these evil kings as as they're, he's listing them in this genealogy, we know all about them because we have data on them from the Old Testament, you would you have to think, how dark did the times get? How, at what point did people begin to give up hope that God was going to come in and provide the Savior because all the leaders of the country had abandoned him? But what Matthew is wanting us to see, that the promise of this genealogy is that God will do everything that he says he will do. And it's really important to understand one more piece about the context in the first century if you were a Jew you had the old testament the same as we do but they had it in a different order all right this is really important because the we have malachi at the end they had what we would call first and second chronicles and do you know how the one book of first and second chronicles in the Jewish tradition begins a genealogy a genealogy that is intended to stir up the question in its audience is he here yet has he come and the genealogy ends very clearly. No, he has not come. And at the end of the book of Chronicles, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, as we call it, there's a decree from King Cyrus answering the question how are we going to be saved? How is this mess of Israel going to be cleaned up? And the answer at the end of Chronicles is the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is going to show us the answer. And then Matthew, knowing this, how does he start his genealogy? From the very beginning, showing us that this time he's come. The Savior is here, the true warrior, the more perfect prophet, the sympathetic priest. He's come. That is what Matthew wants us to see. Jesus came once to initiate the redemption of his people and he will come a second time to finalize the redemption of his people. And we live in this, we call it the already, not yet, the inter-advent period, the period between the comings. And we actually have a lot in common with the Israelites before Jesus because they're in very dark times wondering when is Jesus going to come. And in the same way, we're kind of in dark times wondering when is Jesus going to come back. And Matthew wants to tell them and I think providentially us that he has come and he will come back. Because God does what God says he will do. And Paul writing to the Romans about Abraham, he says exactly this. Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, because he fully believed God could do what he said he would do. But the words, it was counted to him. They're not written for his sake alone. They're written for ours. So the Christian hope is that one day Jesus is coming back. He is coming back. This is why we have Sundays. This is why we have Christmas. This is why we have Advent, because Jesus is coming back. And we need to continually remind ourselves of this. This second coming should change everything about the way that we live our lives because we know this life is not ultimately what we're living for. Jesus is coming back. He is making us new. He is making the earth new. He is making the heavens new. And we will live for eternity with our Lord when that happens. But the Christian faith says you have to believe in the first coming coming to enjoy the second so this Christmas season if you feel like you come from a messed up family well Jesus did too if you feel undervalued unvalued, unappreciated, unloved Jesus did too And this is important to understand because at the foundation of the Christian faith, we have a savior who gets us, who is sympathetic and empathetic in every possible way because he lived a life on this earth, enduring every temptation that we experience. yet he was without sin. And this is what Matthew, a reviled yet redeemed tax collector is wanting to put on display. That we serve a God of grace, who will redeem any of us, but we must believe and follow him. And so the hope of the Christian season, the Christmas season, is that all of us would feel this more, that we would believe this more, that that we would have a more concerted effort on Sundays and our evenings with our families at work to refocus our minds, but then also communicate what it is that we appreciate about the, about the Christmas season to those who don't understand it, who don't know it, and maybe have never even been taught it before. Because Christ did not come for the righteous, he came for the unrighteous. He did not come for the healthy, he came for the poor. That's the Christian hope. I'm really thankful for my first semester here at Orlando Grace. I'm excited to move into this Advent season with you, and my prayer for me and for all of you is that this would be a truly special season, that God would meet us in significant and real ways, that we would be able to really boldly go to Him with some requests that that maybe we're even afraid to acknowledge or make, because we don't want to be let down. But I want to come to you and say, He will not let you down. So I want to finish by praying. exactly this that that this would be a unique and special season in our lives in the life of this church let's pray god we we come to you excited most of us that come in and see reeds and christmas trees certainly we we are excited about some worldly things and i don't think we need to apologize for that we we're excited for vacation and presents and fun and some of us trips But God, we come to you, especially this Sunday morning, thankful for the arrivals, the first arrival and the second arrival. We thank you that we have, by your grace and the power of your spirit, eyes to see the first arrival for what it is and a power of the Holy Spirit to endure until the second arrival comes. And I pray that this would be even more true for all of us today. And I pray if there's anyone in our midst who doesn't, that I wouldn't want them to ever feel manipulated or in any way pushed by me, but I pray that you would work in all of our spirits so that all of us would proclaim joyfully that Jesus is Lord. I pray this in your name. Amen.